Okay, so Rabbi Levine, you have okay. the floor. Okay, thank you. So first of all, thank you to Bruce. I'm happy to have this opportunity to teach nice Jewish people. Um, I am, as mentioned, Rabbi Levine. I'm the Rabbi of Amachad in Willowglen, down the block. Um, <coughs> actually, I send, I've, over the years, I've dealt with Lenurenberg and uh, Mrs. Corso, Miss Judith has been here, and Sandy Silver. Always I send the guy for to blow the chauffeur, the pet. It was Mr. Milrod. This year it was Mr. Lewis. Tzvi Lewis came. So I've, uh, we all, they built a circus also. I actually, I've never taught here, so I'm actually ha- happy for the opportunity. Bruce was very, very diligent, uh, and he was very particular. <laughs> he wanted a certain topic of Kabbalah. So I don't know if it would be the first topic I would have picked, but if people want to learn Torah and this is the topic they want to discuss, then far be it for me to stop. There's a lot of Torah to learn. Kabbalah is certainly an important Important part. So, first of all, what is Kabbalah, and what is what's not Kabbalah? So, Kabbalah is. I think they they often tra- I think Bruce even mentions mentions they often translate Kabbalah as mysticism, right? Kabbalah is the study of the hidden, underlying spiritual essence of the world. So, again, Kabbalah is the study of the hidden underlying spiritual essence of the world. So just to give, I, I once saw Rabbi Shimon Lieberman gives a nice analogy to explain how we understand. You're late, Miss Corso. You can call me JC. I don't like that word. I know. But it stands for Yudit. Yeah, I know. Yudit I like. Okay, Yudit. Um, you can call me I'll call you Yudit. Or Yehudis. How does that sound? So imagine the following parable, right? So a person's in a lab, a research lab. Any anyone anyone a scientist in here? No. No scientist. Okay. You're in a research lab. And a person's looking at all sorts of atomic phenomena. One person's a researcher. He's a graduate student. He's a researcher. He's looking at it. And he starts to draw some conclusions. He's meticulous in his work. He doesn't understand everything. But, you know, gets a certain picture. The next person in this lab is a great scientist. scientist. He's a, a, a Nobel laureate. Went to, I went to University of Pennsylvania. I'm not only a rabbi, I'm a lawyer. So he went to University of Pennsylvania. Great university. Right? Stanford's almost as good as it, right? So, <laughs> so he went to University of Pennsylvania. In his, and he's now a Nobel laureate. And he's looking at it. And he actually not only does understand the science, he's actually able to see things that are not noticeable. And through calculations, he realized that there must be other realities here. And because he's a very, very strong background in science, and he's a very smart person, so he's able to see things like super strings. He's able to construct it, even though there's no microscope today, it's currently powerful to see these super strings. He knows that that what, what, what must be there, or atomic tunnels, or energy bridges, or ten dimensions. And now there's a third guy. The third guy is, doesn't know the first thing about science knows nothing about science, but he's very creative, very fertile mind, and he hears words like atomic tunnels, uh, unlimited sources of energy, ten dimensions, doesn't know the first thing about nuclear physics, nothing, but he um, doesn't understand, but he hears these catchy words, and he starts imagining all kinds of things. That it's what's like Kabbalah like. The first person is, let's say, a, a Talmudic type mind, doesn't really have a background, but could have a basic understanding of certain principles. The second person, the great scientist, is a person who can really delve into Kabbalah. Really, really understand it. And the third person, we call it in America, quacks, right? <laughs> right? Which today are many of these pseudo-Kabbalists. They really don't understand anything, but they hear a few catchy words, mm-hmm. some mysticism, metaphysics, exciting, right? They heard that Madonna studies Kabbalah, yeah, yeah. right? It's, it's, it's a fad in Hollywood. And all of a sudden, it's catchy. I call it pop spirituality, right? You threw a few kinds of words. It sells, right? People make, you make money. And actually, Kabbalah is like junk food. You know what junk food is? It's, it's, that's what Kabbalah becomes. Exactly. It's just, it's, it's spiritual pop. There's no obligation, no obligation, Nothing, it doesn't change your life, mm-hmm. and you feel like you're spiritual, right? That's the third category. The Ramchal, the Ramchal, or Meisha Chaim Lutzato. Has anyone ever studied the works of the Ramchal? 
with? Oh, no, I'm reading. You're reading? Which work are you reading? I'm reading um, the book, I think it's a book of God. Derech Hashem. Yes, Hashem. good book. Right. Uh, he wrote The Path of the Just, too, the Derech Hashem. I have that one also. It's good stuff from Feldheim, which publisher did you get? Excellent, all right, fantastic. So the Ramchal was a great 18th century, early 18th century Italian sage. The Ramchal was a child prodigy. He was a big Kabbalist. He was born in a, Padua, Italy, in 1707, passed away in Akko, in Akko, in 17, I think 46, at 39 years old. 39 years old. He's, yep. He was moved him very young. He died in a plague. He was buried in Tiberias. If you go to Tiberia, up the hill, there's two major, on the top of Tiberias, in Tiberia, there are two famous people who are buried there. One is Rabbi Akiva, and the second person is the Ramchal. If you go to the bottom of the hill, there you'll find the Rambam, and Rabbi Meir Balhanes, and the Shlaw, lots of famous sages. But on top, facing the Sea of the Galley is buried the Ramchal. The Ramchal was one of the most important Kabbalists of the past 500 years. Says the Ramchal in a work called Klach Piskei Chachma. I'm going to read it in English. Anyone here understand Hebrew? Abyssal. Mat. A little. Okay, so most things I'll read in English. I don't want to... I can read in Hebrew, but if no one understands it, uh, you know, it would be pointless to, to say at least. Okay, so says the Ramchal, the entire wisdom of Kabbalah Listen to this. The entire, says the Ramchal, the entire wisdom of Kabbalah is only to understand how the supreme will governs, for what purpose he created all these different creatures, what he wants from them, what will come at the end of all the cycles of the universe, and how all these strange cycles are to be explained. For the supreme will uh, uh, it, uh, it's already calculated the entire cycle of governance. These calculations are talked about how God deals with the world, and they're called spheres. And he continues. You know what? I've got to get my notepad. I have to bring it. Well, I'll continue. It's being taped. Do you have a handout? I don't, but I don't have anything I can... But if anyone who... Uh, yeah, but I'm here afterwards, and I can give you. Um, the interesting thing is that whenever our sages refer to Kabbalah, the, 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 or the Talmud refers to the study of Kabbalah. It doesn't call it Kabbalah. We'll get to what Kabbalah is in a minute. Why that? That's the name. But the Talmud calls Kabbalah Soid. It's the secrets. Soid. S O D is how you spell it in English. Or Samach Vov Dalid in Lashon Hakodesh. Soid. It's the hidden, esoteric parts of the Torah. Kabbalah. Kabbalah was always very used language, for example, which is inexplicit, hints, ramazim. You know why? Because when you're taking, talking about spirituality or you're talking about God, any word that you use takes away from it. I, I hate to say a crude analogy, but in our world today, sexuality is debased. How is it, right? Sexuality in Judaism is the highest level of holiness and connection. And today it's sold as quick pleasure, sensuality. And the more you talk about it, you can't describe what a husband and wife are physically intimate on a high level. There's no words you can explain it. So what, what's used in the secular world is vulgarity, right? And, and on the contrary, something that's so holy, so proper, it gets besmirched, right? We're talking about the divine, on the contrary, the less you say, the better. Any description of God <laughs> is not sufficient, right? Any sufficient of the, of the Almighty, the Omnipotent. There's no words you can possibly describe. So we're very, very careful how it's described. And more than that, what Kabbalah is going to show us, part of the secret is, there's multiple dimensions to the world. So what is this, what, is, what do we call this over here in front of me? Lectern. Oh, now you go. See, I call it a shtender. In Yiddish, it's called a shtender. A podium, you have to like, you know, be up here for a podium. You know? It's higher. It's higher, right? But in in, in the yeshiva, as as a role, a shtender. If I'm in, I'm gonna be lecturing in whatever lecture in a university. I'll call it a lectern. Okay. So I don't think. Uh, our, uh, you know, our, our Far Eastern friends know what a shtender is. So I say <laughs> lectern. Great. Uh, so. You know, at the end of the day, this lectern, is this, what would you call this? Wood? But really it's not wood. There is 
there's multiple levels below this. There's, there's uh, microscopic electrons and protons. And if you go, you can keep breaking it down more and more and more and more. To, 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 there's multiple layers. Just like the physical world, everything you see has multiple levels. I mean, today, with quantum physics, mm-hmm. even the world itself, what we see is not really exact, right? right? The spiritual world said, Reb Chaim Velazhen. Reb Chaim Velazhen was the greatest disciple of the greatest sage of the past 300 years. The greatest sage of the past 300 years, his name was Rabbi Eliyahu Kramer from Vilna. Many people know him as the Vilna Goyen, right? So the Vilna Goyen, anyone heard of the Vilna, everyone, everyone heard of the Vilna Goyen? Who's, where's that Litzvox? The Vilna Goyen, Lithuania was built under the Vilna Goyen. He was the Rav of Vilna, he was the greatest sage of, in Lithuania. So, Chaim Velazhen, Started the first of the modern day yeshivas in a little town called Falajan. Reb Chaim Velazhen has a word called Nefesh Chaim, that the life of Chaim, that the soul of Chaim. And in that, Reb Chaim Velazhen says, just like in the physical world, just like in the physical world, there are multiple levels, so too in the spiritual world. There's a, there's a, let me give you an example. We shake a lulav, right, on Sukkot. There's a mitzvah, but there's many more deeper levels of understanding what you're accomplishing when you're doing that mitzvah, right? Uh, that uh, so so too in the spirit in, in the spiritual and you can't you know quantify a lot of the spirituality so the more the less it's said by people who don't know what they're talking about the better it is okay Kabbalah Kabbalah is an interpretation of the Torah now we believe that the I'm not giving a class in the oral law today right and the oral Torah but certainly it's axiomatic to Judaism that you cannot understand the written Torah without the oral Torah. Okay? It doesn't go. In fact, uh, as I've, I mentioned in my gave the history series, the entire world relies on the, what we call the Orthodox Jewish oral Torah, because you can't read Hebrew without it. Right? Right? There are words in the Torah which are impossible to read uh, without a, a understanding what it is. For example, there's a word, don't eat, I'm not talking about theology right now, but uh, other types of theologies. But it says, don't eat meat and milk together. That's what Torah says. Now, why people can claim they follow the Torah and don't eat meat and milk? Different discussion. But you know what? You know how the word... Does anyone, does anyone read, read Hebrew here? Anybody? Any, any Hebrew readers? So, ches lamed beis is the word for milk. Only a little bit of a problem. Right? Ches lamed beis is also the word for fats. So you can't, you can't, I'm just giving you a very small example. So you look at any Bible in the world, it will say, don't eat meat and milk. How do they know it's in meat and milk? Because the Jewish oral law says it's that way. That's just a small example. There's so many facets you cannot understand without the oral law. The oral law really is the, the, the lecture of the, that, that in, the, in, the, in the written law is a shorthand notes of this lecture. You cannot understand the Torah that the, the oral law. I actually had a friend of mine. Are you Jewish or Christian? Italian? Spiritual being. Spiritual being. Okay, so just take this in the right way. Friend goes, my friend goes to, uh, my friend of mine is a professor at Villanova, and he goes to, this, he, he's, he, he's a professor of law in Villanova, and he was invited to come to an evangelical, real hardcore evangelical school in Philadelphia to lecture. So he goes to the school and says, let me ask you a question, what's the first commandment in the Bible? So, they're thinking, what's the first commandment of the Bible? Finally, after a few minutes, one person raises his hand, be fruitful and multiply. Right? Well, be fruitful and multiply. Okay. So, and at some level, that's true. Being fruitful and multiply, the Torah starts, God tells Adam, and then he tell, repeats it to Noah, and it repeats a third time to Yaakov later on. Be fruitful and multiply. He says, great! Be fruitful and multiply. Question! What does that mean? One kid? Two kids? Three kids? Lots of kids. Lots of kids. I have lots of kids, right? Maybe, uh, what? Right. So, what does that mean? How, what, is, what does fruitful multiply mean? So nobody knew. So he said, listen, the Talmud discusses these type of things, right? There's not just to say, be fruitful and multiply, figure out what that means. Right? The Torah says, richly slaughter an animal. What does that mean? Take a gun and shoot its head? I mean, there's a million things like that. Shake species and unspecified on circus. What does it mean? All of this, the oral law fills in. There's a, and a million other things. By the way, the remarkable thing is modern-day biblical criticism starts, you know, the Catholic Church... Um, largely kept the masses ignorant historically. Absolutely. Historically. I mean, they burned people alive for translating the Bible. So basically, this is how the church worked. Less than 1% of Europe read Latin. <laughs> they took the Bible, 
They told them, they basically, and unfortunately, some of the things they told them, the Jews have horns, and they're the devil, and they're Satan, because they can tell them whatever you want. They're peasants. <laughs> and they told the masses whatever they wanted to tell them, because nobody could read it. I mean, it, was, it was literally the clergy, the monks could read the Bible, and that was it. Right? Nobody else, no one else had access to it. It was written in Latin. In the 16th century, part of the Protestant Reformation was a rebellion against that, and they translated the Bible for the first time. In fact, early Protestant groups, one of the things they did, they had Bible study groups. That was like that was the ultimate, which is saying, the Yiddish shtach, punch in the face of the church, because they not only translated it, they, they, they read it in English. Well, the funny thing is, the minute they start translating the Bible, Bible criticism starts. You know why? Because they had questions. Because once you can read it, like, a lot of things just don't make sense. <laughs> you know, the, Thomas Hobbes, I don't know everyone, Thomas Hobbes, right? Leviathan, was one of the first Bible critics. He asked the question right away. How in the world did Moses give the Torah if the last eight verses says, talks about Moses' death? Right? Good question. Well, all these questions, there's not one Bible criticism question that is not brought up in the Talmud. Right? <laughs> we discuss all these things on every level. So there's an oral, the, the, the oral part of the spirit, not the details, the spirit is Kabbalah. Right? The, always, from the beginning, there's, there was a level of understanding called Kabbalah. Right? That's part of the Torah. It's one of the understandings of the Torah. So again, I can call this a stender, but I can also call it a lectern or a podium. Right? Or I can also see electrons and neutrons and different levels. So the Kabbalah came with it from uh, the beginning. The, there are four basic understandings of the Torah, which I'll just say very briefly. It's called pardes. Right? Pardes. Pshat means the simple level understanding of the Torah. Remiz is uh, hints in the Torah. Uh, so, it says, so it says like that the Jewish people were redu. They went down to Egypt. But redu also equals, in, in, in what we call Gematria, 210. The Jewish people were in Egypt for 210 years. So there's, the words itself allude to other meanings. There's double meanings to words in Hebrew. That's called remez. More than double. Well, at least, well or, or multiple, right? Depends on the word, right? Or multiple. Um, Drash means every rabbi. Like, you ever hear drasha? You want to the word drasha? Or a drash? Anyone hear that? Drush. Homiletics. You know, even this you take from here, this take you take from here, and this so goes so here. Drash, homiletics. Homiletics. They become sermons. Well, homiletics. Thank you. Cross-examining how this fits in over here. I have a Gemara in this tractate. There's a Medrash over here. There's another Gemara over here. And all together, that's, this is what it means. Right? It's all, all together. That's called Josh. And the last is Said. Said is a secret part, which is, which is called Kabbalah. Um, secret what? Secret. Sod is Kabbalah. Sod. It's the more esoteric, deeper understanding of it. There's an interesting thing. There's a Mishnah. Everyone know what Mishnah is here? Right? There's a Mishnah and tractate, Meseches Chagiga. The tractate Chagiga, the Mishnah says as follows. Remember that, and now that what I said that just like that you can't you, that sexuality. The more you talk about it, the more you, you can't describe it. The more you debase it, so you so, corrupt it, right? And again, in Judaism stresses sexuality between man and wife. <laughs> in that prism, is the highest level of spirituality. Actually, it's actually part of the obligation of marriage. It's encouraged not just for children, it's encouraged in general, right? It's a very, very lofty level. Of course, there's certain levels of family purity, but it's a very high level, right? But the more you talk about it, the more, the more you lose its holiness, its spirituality, its beauty is lost in the process. So the Mishnah says, you can never teach this area of Torah to more than three students at once. If it's a class discussion... Uh, it, 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 it's lost. It means it, what the essence of it's lost. Then the Mishnah says, not only can't teach that, you can't teach what's called Mysoberatius about the creation of the world to two people. Because they're also, it's lost. And you can't teach Mysoberkava about the heavenly throne up above to only one student at a time. That's what the Mishnah says. These things, they're so sensitive, they're so crucial, they're so highly spiritual, that teaching it to the masses at once would be a very bad idea. It would, be, it, it would lose its essence. Right? 
then the, the commentaries bring down, and especially Maisim Rakova, which is talk about the God's divinity in this heavenly throne, that can't be to more than one at a time because that's an area which is so critical, so crucial, so easy to make a mistake. And many people just aren't the level to do it, right? They just can't get a total grasp uh, of it. So that the, 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 the Talmud is referring to what we call Kabbalah. Now, there's one. What, what's does anyone have a question for the audience? What's the major work of Kabbalah that everyone knows about? Zohar, right, the Zohar. Who wrote the Zohar? Who was, so remember one thing. If I just said that the, the, this study came from Moses, we didn't, no later person made up. It's, it's part of the understanding of the Torah. So just like the Talmud came that time, right? But when there were persecutions, they decided to write things down. So the Zohar was redacted by one of the greatest, Rabbi Yekiva, I mentioned Rabbi Yekiva before, had five really great students, right? One of his great students was named Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, if, and he redacted the Zohar. Okay, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, his grave today in northern Israel is like a pilgrimage place called Meron. If you're there on Log Baomer, half a million people go there every. If you get bored, to Meron, half a million people every Log Baomer go there. If you want to look on YouTube, mm-hmm. you can look it up. Meron Log Baomer, you'll see half a million people dancing by, the, by, by his grave, by Rishim and Baruchai. Now, we don't pray to the dead. We, we, we believe in God, not dead people. Right? But they go there because it's a holy place. Right? I mean, Shimon Baruchai was the, was the person who wrote on the Zohar. He's one of the, 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 the great students of Be'kiva, another great student of Be'mer, Balhanes, who's, who's buried on the banks of the Galilee. But it was largely kept esoteric with very few students until the 13th century. In the 13th century, there's a person named Moshe de Leon, who was a Spanish sage, who pu- started to publish the Zohar. Right? It was not a published work. You know, I just imagine if you're you know, in an elite club, because they didn't want people getting it out and spreading these types of teaching. So Moshe de Leon actually started to publish it. And... Um, Moshe Dlan left from 1240 to 1305. But it was in the 16th century that the works of Kabbalah went to the masses. Now, why did that happen? So there's two reasons. Some were some the personalities that were there. But also, at some level, it was right after the Spanish Inquisition and expulsion. It was a cataclysmic time for Jewry. It's like post-Holocaust. Right? You have to imagine... The greatest, if, imagine, God forbid, God forbid, right, if, if all American Jews would be kicked out of America. Not only American Jews would be kicked out of America, a third of them would be forcibly converted, right? Mm-hmm. And the rest would have to leave their possessions behind, and they had nowhere to go, right? It's a cataclysmic event, right? And the Zohar is such a, a tool for understanding divine will in the world, how God deals with the world, Messiah, all these types mm-hmm. of things that they... they there became a need for this kind of teaching for the Jewish masses. So the first the really great person who made the Zohar almost encyclopedic, because it's a very hard work to understand. You think Talmud's hard. I'm not sure, right? <laughs> and I've learned, I learned Talmud for many, many, many years. And I went to an Ivy League law school. I can tell you Talmud's very hard. Very enjoyable, but very hard, very important. But very hard. Zohar's harder. But the Ramosha Cordovaro... Now, Cordovaro tells us where did he come from originally? What sounds like Cordovaro? Cordoba. Cordoba, right? His family came from Cordoba, right? Uh, so Moshe Cordovaro, he was a sage in the 16th century in Sfat. Right? He lived from 1522 to 1570. He wrote a book called Pardes Rimonim, The Garden of Pomegranates, which is an encyclopedic work explaining, clarifying, Kabbalistic concepts. Yes? I didn't catch the second word completely. Pardes. Rimonim. Pomegranates. The garden of pomegranates. Or the permanent pomegranate orchard. Right. Or, right. In particular, he discusses how God deals with the world, which we'll get to in a minute. The, 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 the last year of his life, he had a student called... Isaac Luria, the Arizal, and Lurianic Kabbalah would transform 
and really expand on the Zohar, which is what when we say Kabbalah today, most people think about the Ariza. Ari means lion. It literally stands... What? Ariel is uh, Ari and Ariel. Both are words. The lion actually has ten synonyms referring to dif- different parts, of different types of. There's kfir. There's different words to say for lion, but Ariel is also a word to say lion. Um, the Hasidic movement was and is heavily Kabbalistic based. In fact, the Hasidic movement uses a they injected Kabbalist, Kabbalistic intentions into their prayers. So if you ever go to, let's say, a Chabad shul, but Chabad, by the way, is maybe here, but they're, they're, they're much bigger Hasidic groups, let's say Satmar in New York, or Ger in Israel, or Vizhnitz, or Bells, those are really big Hasidic groups. If you look, their prayer service is largely the same as a, a non, I mean, as an Ashkenazic, and as a regular, other prayer services, but they also have a little bit of differences that they were heavily influenced Hasidim by Hasidic, by Kabbalistic thought. So they actually promulgated some level of Kabbalah for everyone. They felt, you know what, the hard parts of Kabbalah, the more in, the esoteric parts, that's not for everyone. But certain basic things, which we'll discuss soon, that's for everyone. Not the, not the more difficult parts, but certain levels, everyone could go ahead and have an appreci- appreciation of it. What about the hard parts? So that, the Gemara says a remarkable story, which is on a, metaphor, on a metaphorical level, but it's an important story. It says that four people went to the heavenly abode, to the parties. These four people lived all in the second century of the common era. One of his name is Rabbi Akiva. One of his name is Rabbi Shimon ben Zoma. One is Rabbi Shimon, uh, Rabbi Shimon ben Azai. And one of his name is Elisha ben Avua. So the Gemara says in, in, in Chagiga, then ben Zoma... Because he went there, went mad. He lost himself. Mm-hmm. He got confused, and he couldn't understand it. Ben Azai literally, literally wanted to leave, leave the physical world. He looked at the physical world, he didn't want to, and, he, and he died. Elisha ben Avuha became a heretic. And his name became Acher, because he started to see a good and a bad. He, you know, almost a Christian view of God. Like, his, Satan can fight God, almost like that, which is very anti-Jewish. Right? This, if God runs the world, there's no Satan. <laughs> Satan is a tool of God. That's how Judaism views what Satan is. Right? There's no, it's impossible, and God is omnipotent, and anything's fighting God. Right? So he saw a good and bad system, which is, an, which is how most of the ancient world looked at the world. It was good and evil as two separate things. Judaism says that's heresy. Right? It's all from God. There cannot be that kind of divide. Um, he went, and Rabbi Kiva came out more perfect. Mm-hmm. And what that tells us is that th- this esoteric study could build a person, make a person greater, or it could break a person. It's such a spiritual su- type thing. You have to be very careful who studies, who, who studies it. So the Ramak himself, this Ramosha Kordavar, what did he write again? Pardes, Rimonim, the orchard of pomegranates, or pomegranate orchard. The Ramak says as follows. There are some completely mistaken people who although know neither scripture, Mishnah, nor the Talmud, nevertheless involve themselves in the study of this discipline. This is called the, the, uh, right, only pop Kabbalah. But she certainly, this is, what, what is she doing with, whatever, even that? Again, there, there's something that's universal that everyone can take from. But there's other things that's just a bad idea. I, and we'll get to in, in a minute. So Rabbi Chatzkel Sarna, Rabbi Chatzkel Sarna was a Lithuanian sage, he passed away in 1969. He was the dean of one of the three largest yeshivas in Israel. It was called Chevron Yeshiva. It was really actually called Slobodka. Slobodka was part. It was in Kovna Lita, Kovna Lithuania, and the Slobodka moved to Chevron in the 1920s. And when the Chevron massacre of 1929 occurred, anyone know about that happened that massacre? 85 people were killed in that massacre, including dozens of yeshiva boys. So they took the yeshiva out of Hebron, moved it to Jerusalem, and they called the yeshiva Hebron as a remembrance. So to, the, to this day, there's a, a yeshiva in Jerusalem with over a thousand students called Hebron Yeshiva. As that, they've been in Jerusalem since 1929, but they called Hebron since that. So Chatzko Sarna, who was the head of that yeshiva, he said the Kabbalah is for those unique individuals who have mastered the revealed Torah. 
and who having done so have already fathomed so much of the hidden Torah, there's no longer any danger of getting confused because we're talking about divine concepts over here on these high levels. Right? The Radak, Rav David Kimchi. Rav David Kimchi was a 12th century Spanish sage. So he comments on a verse in Psalms, a verse in Tillam. The Pasuk says in Tillam, Soid Hashem Hodiam. The God's secret is to the revealed for those who have awed him. What? No. No. Well, well, and he makes no to his, his covenant. So he says that God will only reveal the secret parts of the Torah to those who are at this level. Okay. And there's actually a concept that I'm, I'm turning 40 very soon, actually. So I know I have studied Kabbalah, but that many circles, they only start studying Kabbalah at the age of 40. Mm-hmm. At the age of 40 is when they study. Uh? You must be male as well. Uh, not necessarily, though it's usually it's usually not necessarily, but usually the reason you're male because you have to you have to have a, a certain amount of background and other studies to, to do it. But mem shana is is mem shana is equals neshama. Mem shana is like the same words as neshama, right? So at mem shana you can start learning the heart of Judaism. One more concept, which Nachmanis, anyone know who Nachmanis is? Ramban. Mm-hmm. Ramban, Nachmanis, Nachmanis was the great 13th century sage who actually had a very famous uh, confrontation discourse with Pablo Christiani, who was a Jewish apostate, uh, in front of the king of Spain. He won that debate, but then he was forced to leave Spain because he beat him in front of the king. And the Jesuits went after him afterwards. So the Ramban, the end of his life, moved to Israel. Okay? He wrote one of the most famous commentaries on the written law, Nachmanis, Ramban on the Torah. He also has a running commentary on the Talmud as well. So Ramban says, very important to have a teacher teach you Kabbalah. Because, you know, uh, 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 does anyone know martial arts? Do you ever hear of someone just learning on a textbook martial arts? <laughs> <laughs> going on a computer and like going like, you know, does, does anyone do those things? No. What? You also have a teacher at Krav Maga, right? Although Krav Maga is not, is not even, even nearly as... You did Kabbalah. I'm not going to start up with you anymore. Okay, so, so but Kabbalah means it's so sensitive. You want to make sure it correctly. And little, what does the word Kabbalah literally mean in Hebrew? Kabbalah means acceptance or the passing down. So it means that you pass from teacher to student. Kabbalah is not something you read on Wikipedia or online, or you open some book somewhere on Amazon that they sell, or in Barnes and Nobles, or you go to the library. Kabbalah is something you study from teachers to another. Works are the Zohar, or the Arizal, or the Ramchal. But you need a teacher to teach you because it's so, so sensitive. You need to make sure you're not making critical errors uh, on, on the topic. Now, uh, since we, I mentioned that on some level there are certain concepts that are, are universal, everyone can learn from. I'm going to mention a few of these universal concepts we can all learn about Kabbalah that I'm comfortable teaching you and that that, that, that it's okay. We're not going to learn at a high level, but it's important concepts. One is a concept called, what Kabbalah teaches, called Hishtalshalus. Hishtalshalus. A shalshalus literally means a chain. But Hishtalshalus means development. Development. Right? And Hishtalshalus means the way God deals with this world. There's many channels how God gives energy. All of us, everyone, everyone hear what I say? Right? We're all thinking, we all have a soul in our physical bodies. So, there, there are many, our body functions on many levels, so God deals with the world on many, on many levels. Um, one of the concepts of is how God interacts with the world. There are four worlds of spiritual worlds between us and God. There's something called simsum. Uh, Chabad likes to learn a word called, work called Tanya. Like, that's like the bread and butter for Chabad. It's called Tanya. Thank you. What exactly, how does Tanya differ from Kabbalah? Tanya, is, it, Tanya was, by the founder of the Chabad movement, it's like their primer. It's basically how he understood Kabbalistic teachings that he could sell to the masses. So, but it's all based on Kabbalistic thought. He didn't make any, up anything. No, no. He just took it, packaged His it. Interpretation. Uh, yeah, largely, but largely universal interpretation. Mm-hmm. It's just how you explain it. It's just. 
you're taking, like, you know, physics, you have two, three physics professors, they're all teaching physics, there'd be different nuances how you teach physics, right? So if the, if the Lubavitch Rebbe was a physics professor, he was teaching Kabbalah in that way. So he made it in a certain way. He had certain emphasis and certain focuses on it. So one of the big things, uh, one of the big discussions in Tanya is a concept called simsum, that, that, which literally means uh, God's contracting. God's contracting. Because what does that mean, God's contracting? Now, I honestly, I'm not crazy. I think I'm very smart. I'm not or decently smart. I see God in the world. But if someone say, okay, show me God here. Show me God here. I could maybe make an argument, but you can't see God literally, right? Does anyone, anyone ever see God? If anyone said they saw God literally, they're lying or they're crazy. They're, they're crazy, right? Nobody sees God. How does that, how do we, if God is everywhere, if God is the essence of the world, how, does it, how do you have a world where you don't see God? More than that, how do you have a, a world of free will, right? If God is omnipotent, how is there free will, right? How do you create a, a void where there's where you can have a block, even though God constantly gives the world life, but as a void, you have a block in seeing God. So this is constant, and I'm, I'm not doing this justice, because I don't have the time to do it, but I'm mentioning these concepts, which are, which are discussed. It's called Simpson, that God, in order to create the world, pulled back out of the world. This is, this is a major Kabbalistic time discussion. And there's another discussion in this thing of Hishtalshlis, is that there's ten spheres, ten ways which God interacts with the world. Okay, I'm going to touch on that in a, in a couple of minutes. Another major aspect of Kabbalah is that Kabbalah gives the reasons for many of the mitzvahs which are on a higher level. Right? I mentioned shaking a lulav. You think shaking a lulav, you know, like just like taking a palm frond and a citron, like, okay, <laughs> you know, like this meaningless thing. What do you mean? There's all kinds of metaphysical realities, right? Let me give you an example. If you take a keyboard with a computer just pushing buttons, no, you're actually programming the computer, right? Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of things going on when you push this button. But if you take a four-year-old and you put him in front of the computer, he thinks, oh, I'm pushing A, B, C, D, E, F, G. He doesn't understand that you really, when you use those buttons, there are a lot of things you can do with them. In fact, you can hack into <laughs> the, 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 the banking system in the world if you know what you're doing, right? You can, you can send emails to people to make them feel good. You can do lots of things. So Kabbalah explains what those buttons do. When the mitzvahs have multiple things that you can't see to the naked eye, and Kabbalah discusses some of this. Another thing that Kabbalah does, it, it gives um, descriptions of physical realities, which you know you would think they're happenstance, or there's no real crazy purpose of it, but really, there is really a depth to it. For example, um, why are there mountains and valleys and fish? Like, is that just haphazard? Is, there, is it by chance there's fish in the world? Where, why are they there? Why do men have two eyes? Why, is there, why do they have one mouth? Right? Kabbalah will actually say what the significance. Talmud does some of this stuff as well. Why we have one mouth, two eyes, two ears. It's not just that, right? If you believe the world's created by God, there's a reason <laughs> that we have two eyes and two ears and one mouth. Right? What, what does that mean? Right? Why are there mountains and valleys? There, are, there is not just symbolism, which is the, the Talmud will discuss, but there are more esoteric reasons. Just like when you're pushing those buttons to the computers, there's reasons why certain programs work certain ways. And the fourth thing, which is very interesting, and which Kabbalah discusses, which I probably won't have time to, to really delve into, but which is a bombastic concept, which the Talmud really doesn't discuss at length, is the idea of reincarnation. The possibility of reincarnation is discussed in, in Kabbalah. Well, in fact, the Arizal, Lurianic Kabbalah in particular, discusses a lot of things in the concept of reincarnation. Now, you're not reincarnated as the same person, but your soul could be reincarnated. And what that means and how that would work uh, about a soul being reincarnated in theory, that's another one of the major things which Kabbalah discusses. Okay? So, just a few things. Yes, Bruce. How, how much is uh, reincarnation discussed in the uh, pop Kabbalah? Little. Little, yeah. because it's, I mean, it's not, you know, uh, it's not, doesn't, uh, pop Kabbalah is, it, it, it's basically spiritual mush, right? It's feeling good about feeling, people today, there's a, there, there is a, let's see, Listen, I, 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 although I'm an Orthodox, I mentioned I went to an Ivy League law school. I deal with all kinds of people. 
you know, professionals. And I grew up in Miami Beach in a very Jewish but very mixed community. So there's an, ang- there's an angst amongst people today. We live in largely a godless society, right? People don't feel spiritual today, right? There's very little. You look at whether it's anyone watch the Super Bowl on Sunday, every commercial will be about pleasure. Mm-hmm. Beer. Vacations, sex, nothing in the right in the emotional, spiritual level. It's all sensual, and that's what sells. That's what that's what the world revolves around today. And there's a there's a desire for every human being. That's part of our spirituality. I mean, I'm not. This is not a discussion today, but the, the essence of all of, of every neshama, every soul, Jew and Gentile, is that there's a desire to connect to the, to, to the divine. So when you take pop spirituality, it's feel-good spirituality, right? It's, it's the junk food syndrome, right? Our body needs right. to eat. You can feed the body a good breakfast of eggs and whole wheat bread, which I'll call Torah mitzvahs. Or you can give it, you know, some ice cream. Ice cream for breakfast. Anyone even ice cream for breakfast? I love ice cream. Especially chocolate ice cream. But I'm not going to eat it for breakfast. There's a place for chocolate ice cream, you know. But not for breakfast because that may feel good, right? But it's not going to... So pop spirituality, pop Kabbalah is doing holy water. We're talking about spirituality and everything you could be. You can do, you know, the worst sins in the world, right? You can cheat on people's husbands. You can do terrible things, but there's a spiritual connection to it. You can spiritualize everything in this world, right? I know that at some level, this man's husband, Madonna could say, needs me. <laughs> so I'm going to help him, and I'll find the spirituality in that moment, that our souls are combined at some level. You can sell anything, and you'll feel good about it. Oh, I'm, I'm helping the world, yeah. The thing that always has bothered me about that uh, group of capitalists or the they're not Kabbalists. Okay. They're pseudo-Kabbalists. The birds. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is the focus that they place on magic and manipulating, Ooh. trying to manipulate yeah, God's abs- will. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's the thing that really... Well, people, there's... So, there, there, well, <laughs> there is, again, you know, it's like suits and ladders. People like to feel like they can just do it. magic buttons. Mm-hmm. You know, it's you know, it's more than steroids. You want to feel like you can get, get gain muscle with, with nothing. It's like... Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 hocus pocus type stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, actually, the Bergs they started. I went to Yeshiva in Queens at one point. They that's where they come from. Uh, so another family. Um, so the Vilna Gaon, I mentioned the Vilna Gaon was the greatest sage of past hundred years. So when he starts talking, the Vilna Gaon, by the way, was a trem- one of his. He was famous for his works on the Shulchan Aruch on the Code of Jewish Law, on his emendations to certain words in the Talmud. But he was a tremendous Kabbalist. I mean, he has many, many works on Kabbalah. He was also a great mathematician. There's something called Kramer's Theorem, which he wrote. Um, so the Vilna Goyen says as follows. It is forbidden even to think about the essence of the infinite. Blessed be he. The essence of the... The infinite God. Blessed be he. Everything we say when speaking about him or his spheres or how God deals with the world refers only to his will as expressed to his actions. You cannot describe God. Right? The rule, because our brains can't even fathom. We're physical. I mean, we're physical. It's not, it's not, a question, it's not, it's not surprising that, that the ancient religions or some modern religion versions have physical gods. Because that's what we understand. Right? It's, that's, what can, that's what we can relate to. But certainly, it's actually one of the tenets of heresy for Jews to believe any corporality as far as God is concerned. God doesn't fly in, in the mountains with, with lightning bolts. Mm-hmm. He doesn't walk in the human earth. God is omnipotent. Right. So, the Ain Sof. Oh, very good. Right. Ain Sof. God is omnipotent. There's no way you can physically describe Hashem. There's no way to physically describe God. The Ramchal, going back to this, the, the famous 18th century Italian Kabbalist, the Ramchal says as follows, Wherever we say about the Creator, blessed be He, it is self-understood that we speak only about his deeds. Like, we can see how God deals with the wor- world, not about his essence or real being. Even when we use the term, the infinite one, Ein Saif, that the God, there's, no, there's no quantifying God, 
Because again, we, our brains don't, there's nothing that we have in our experience. I mean, there's the word Google. There's the word Google. <laughs> we, don't, right? we don't know what something means. We, don't, we can't even fathom what infinite means. Right? We can't even, or, or omnipotent is. So, right? so even when we refer to this, it does not refer to God's essence at all. Rather, what we know about him through his actions. Okay? That's the first thing we're talking about God. So let's go back now. Simpson, I mentioned Simpson is this idea of God's act of uh, contracting himself in order to let a physical world where, which masks God and to give us free will, mm-hmm. right? To give us the ability to choose, the ability to have free, uh, free will, will. So Rabbi Chaim Vital, Rabbi Chaim Vital was the greatest disciple of the Arizal, the, uh, in, in the foremost disseminator of Luriana Kabbalah. Rabbi Chaim Vital was born in Sfat, in the middle of the 16th century, he passed away in 1620, he had moved to Damascus. Syria, which today is a major war zone, historically had a very beautiful and very strong Jewish community for many, many years. Both in Aleppo and Damascus had very, very strong communities. So Rebbe Vital passes away in Damascus, but he, for years he was one of the progenies of, uh, 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 of Asfat. And he spread the results. So Rebbe Vital, I'm not going to discuss it, but he discussed it at length. This idea of Simpson, because as is the Ramachal, because we're not learning this in depth. Uh, the Tanya, as mentioned, Chabad will go through this concept of Simpson uh, as well. So I, I'm just, what I will say is uh, Rabbi Becher, who actually was a scholar residence recently at my synagogue, who was a teacher of Torah in New York. So he, in his book, uh, he, he says, We are used to thinking of Jewish understanding as creation, as creation ex nilo. That God created something from nothing. Right? That the world, there is nothing in the world. And that's true at some level. That as the Ramban Nachmanis explains that there's nothing. There is, well, actually the science now says, calls it the Big Bang, right? <laughs> the world is nothing and then something came into being. But Kabbalah reveals to us that the opposite is really true. Originally God was everywhere. But in order to create a world, right, God had to pull himself out to create something without directly being God. Right? Because again, the universe is at some level a mask. Really, you should, if God is everywhere, think about this, if God is omnipotent, God is everywhere, we should be able to see God everywhere. We should be overwhelmed with God. Right? We should be overwhelmed with God. Every commercial on Sunday is supposed to be God. <laughs> God. Right? Should, the trees should sing God. Right? Everything should be Hashem. That, that's the world. I mean, that, if God is, you know, God is not, I, I, hate, I hate to even use the two words in the same breath, but like you think of Trump, you know, like if Trump, 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 you know, <laughs> God, I mean, God would be everywhere, right? I mean, it would be, would be literally everywhere, right? I, I mean, he, Trump is, whether they like or his politics or not, I'm, I'm not here to, to endorse any candidate or to attack, but he, he put his name everywhere it is, right? But God's essence is that way. God is the world, Right? Right? God is the world. I mean, so the only way you could have a world with free will, the only way you could have a world which doesn't shout out God at every second, although you could see God if you want to, if you choose to, if you desire to, is with this concept called Sim so much. I'm just going to leave it at that. Because again, I can literally speak 20 hours straight and I wouldn't do this justice. But I'm just touching on the concepts so we understand the concepts are. Uh, another concept is called spheres, the ten spheres. So the Ramak, Ramosh Kardavar, this great 16th century sage, who, who right after the Spanish Inquisition really helped um, expulsion more than Inquisition, uh, uh, spread and clarified Kabbalistic concepts, talks about spheres. Um, so Rabbi Margolis, who was a sage in Israel about 50 years ago has a word called Shari Zohar, the gates of the Zohar. So he explains his spheres. He says the spheres refer to the vessels through which God's infinite light reaches us. However, the various vessels through which the light emanates cause us to receive the light in varying degrees of intensity. The word sphira comes from the word sfar, to count. Like everyone here, sphira sa'omer, the counting of the omer, to count. Right? So it's how, it, it's in reference to the fact that God serves as boundaries, how God, you know, you see, if you've ever a parent, I have multiple kids. So some kids I'm tough with sometimes, and some kids I'm sweet with. I love my kids. I don't love one kid more than another kid. 
But this kid needs toughness, and this kid needs sweetness, and this kid is behaving, and this kid is not. I, I'm one person, right? I, but I'm, I'm treating them differently because at that moment, and, by the way, and they reverse very often. One kid today needs this, and this kid needs this, you know, and today this kid needs this. But I'm not different, but the way I'm acting towards them is different. There are different boundaries, there are different expressions I'm giving them. So God has multiple ways that he can deal with the world. It's one God. Right, but he's dealing with the world depending on the circumstances differently. How God deals in those circumstances is called spheres. These are boundaries, and from the word sapir, sapir means to illuminate. This is the emanation of God's light. So there are ten basic spheres. I'm going to say them really quick. I am not going to embellish on them. You can spend many, many, many hours discussing them. How God deals with the world. Again, I'm just giving over basic material. The ten spheres are kesser, which means crown. Again, this is the way he deals with the world. Chachma means wisdom. Bina, which means understanding. Chesed, which means kindness. Gvura, which means power. Tiferish, which means splendor. Netzach, which is eternity. Ho, which is beauty. Yisod, which is foundation. Amalchus, which is majesty. All these ways are God's deals with the world. Another concept on this of Hishtalshalus is called, there's four worlds, Right? When God channels into this world, again, physics today is a great, there's metaphysics, there's physics, physics, there are multiple le- levels of how we interact with things, right? Even when the sun's coming down on us, we, we don't realize how many things are in between the sun and us until we get that sunlight, right? And how, how many years does it take the sun to actually hit us? Or from stars? We, we think, when I was a little kid, you know, you walk through five years and you see stars, you think that the, five minutes ago the star gave light. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was light years away, and it's coming here, right? We're, we're getting, and again, when you talk about quantum physics, huh, whatever we see is very, very different. So God deals, there's spiritual channels to deal with this world, and there's spiritual channels how we can connect to God. The basic four worlds we are is, I'm just going to tell, tell it over, I'm just saying this exists in Kabbalistic thought. If any of you want to Work yourselves up to Kabbalah. You can learn this in depth. But these are the four basic concepts is Asiya, which is the world of doing. That's what we're all in here. All of you, whether you like the way I spoke or not, you did a good thing today. You came to learn Torah. Beautiful. You chose in this physical world a great thing to do. You could have sat there and looked at the TV and got nothing. You know, let your brain turn into mush. You could have played Mahjong and... Got nothing as well, but at least sort of stretched your arms as you're doing it, you know? Right? Right? I mean, Asiya means the world of doing. We live in the world of doing. This world is a world of accomplishment. You could do things in this world. You could accomplish things in this world. That's, that's what we're, the world we're in, Olam Asiya. Uh, another world is Olam Yitzira, the world of shaping. I'm going to get this at Yitzira, to, to shape. I'm going to get this at the end. But literally, there's a bounce back effect. You know, like, ever see, I talk about children. If our kids are good to us, we're good to them, right? Well, it's not just that we're good. If we are holy in this world, holiness comes back to us. We're vulgar in this world, vulgarness comes back to us on the spiritual channels. Yitzir means we, be- as we bang up, it bangs back more that way in the heavenly world. Again, I'm dumbing this down to a great level, but the- this is the concept. Olam Yitzir is, there's that world. And then there are higher worlds, of Brio, which we call the celestial world, right? <coughs> um, Bria. Bria. Literally means creating. Uh, the, Kabbalah, the works of Kabbalah discuss concepts of angels and all that stuff. Anything you've read in uh, secular society is wrong, so I'm not going to go there. What really the concept of angels is. Remember, Judaism is a source of all this stuff. Right? Whether it's heaven or hell, angels or all these things come from Judaism. How it translates into secular society or to the Christian world who took these concepts and put Greek Greek mythology into it, right? I, I, I'm not discussing today, but there, the concept of Messiah is a Jewish concept. There's no concept of Messiah in the world till the Jews came around. No concept of heaven till the Jews come around. Right? These are our concepts. Sabbath, right? All these are Jewish concepts. How it's used or abused or clarified in different systems, I'm not here to discuss today, but there are the concept of the angels. I promise you, if you read any novels or Alternative things, you're not going to get a Jewish viewpoint of it. Okay, I guarantee that. Uh, no one's flying around, and there are no ghosts in buildings, and there's no haunted houses. Sorry to Walt Disney, although when I was younger, I was always terrified in Disney World. As I get older, I realize you know, there's no real ghost per se in that sense, right? That came from certain realities. There are spiritual forces, and that is to be discussed, but not for right now. Atzilus is the highest level, the, getting closer to the divine. Okay.
there's a tremendous concept. And that's really one for us today, for all of, all of us in this room, which Kabbalah teaches, Kabbalah stresses. And that is, which is a, the con, because you know what? You can learn Kabbalah and you can, we can stay exactly the same. You can talk about the divine. You know, there is a famous teacher of Jewish ethics, his name is Shlomo Volba. Volba passed away about 15 years ago. He was a student of Lithuania yeshivas. He was born in Switzerland. He lived as a little boy. Actually, his father was not even Jewish. Mm-hmm. And, and he ended up learning in Rav Hirsch's yeshivas, and then he went to Lithuania, and he became a very, very big, pious rabbi. Uh, and uh, Rav Volba, and he's famous for moral, you know, his moral ethical teachings. So Rav Volba used to say, whenever you learn ethics, whenever you learn what we call Musar, mus- right? don't learn it with somebody else. Study by yourself. Sometimes it's good to talk to somebody else, but ultimately you have to study your work yourself. You can learn Ramachal's Mesil Sasham, The Path of the Just. Beautiful work. I've done that work dozens of times. But if you learn it with somebody else, right? You talk about arrogance, or you talk about greediness, or being lustful. So when you're having two people, you're talking about a third person. <laughs> oh, that arrogant person. Don't be like him. But when you learn Musar by yourself, you're talking to yourself. <laughs> you're bringing it home. Right? I got to work on this. I can't be lazy. I got to be great. I got to be strong. Right? When you learn Musa to yourself, it's about working on ourselves. In Kabbalah, we're, we're, the ultimate cause to improve ourselves, to make ourselves better. One of the most important concepts in Kabbalah is the cosmic effects of man's behavior. Amen. The cosmic effects of man's behavior. How we act, act affects the, not only our own personal life, but the spiritual world. How we act affects the spiritual world. So the Majesh Tan Chuma says like this, The man is a microcosm of the universe. The Malbim explains this. The Malbim was the Rav of Bucharest, Romania, in the middle of the 19th century. From the greatest sages 170 years ago. So the Malam explains this measure. says that man is called a microcosm of the universe because all of the world and all of reality that was created in the six days of creation from the beginning to the end are within him. Man is the image of all reality. In, in ourselves, we are all... The Talmud says when you murder somebody, you destroy the whole world. Each one of us are unique. Right? Each one of us have unique things which will never be in the world again. We are in the divine image, everyone. And we all have a uniqueness to us, which is singular. Singular. Just like, the, just like Adam was created singular in this world, right? We also have a singular quality, which will never, our faces, our dimensions, our personalities, will never be in this world again, but for us. The Ramchal, who I mentioned a few times in another work called Das Tvunos, um, Das Tvunos, uh, explains, which means the understanding heart, that man's role as a unifier and representative of all parts of reality, also means that all of reality hangs on every action. We could change the world. We could change our world. We could, in our private room, if we do a good deed, it actually affects the whole world. Yes. Right? And if we think vulgarity, it affects the whole world also. We think, what am I? I'm thinking vulgarity. No, it, that spiritual effect affects the world. Um, it's not a theory, but yeah. yeah. The ripple effect, yes. Or the butterfly effect. A butterfly, right? although... Actually, I spoke this year in Amachan and Kippur about that concept. It's called the butterfly effect, and, and what that really means and how that goes. But, right. So, whenever you, um, um says in Derech Hashem, in the, uh, in the way of God, that the master, blessed be has a God, that man's actions affect the spiritual sources of everything in the world. Not only man's deeds have this effect, but even his words and thoughts. If we, we, does anyone know at some level what's the worst sin in the Torah? What's the worst there in the Torah? Lashon hara, slander. Slander, right? Now, now, why is that? So it happens to be there, there are worse sins to do. But Lashon hara is using our mouth. Our mouth is spiritual. Actually, the Torah in the beginning of, the, uh, of creation said that when they talk to the creation of man, it says... Is, Adam will make man is ruach mamalala that he has a spirit filled in him and his ability to speak and to convey thoughts. 
spirituality, the highest Torah mitzvah is the study of Torah. The worst Tevera is Lashon Hara. Now, one of the reasons Lashon Hara is so bad is because it breaks down the Jewish community. If you badmouth people, it breaks unification. Right? It breaks apart families. breaks apart friendships. Right? You know what she said about you? You know what he did to you? But another level is it's abuse of the spiritual. The mouth could build and still use the mouth to destroy. Right? If that, you speak on the phone, you send an email... Not just if there's consequences. When a person, God forbid, if a, a, some lowly guy looks at pornography on the internet, it's not just his own soul that he's selling. He's ruining the spirituality of the world. If a guy's sitting in his house learning Talmud, connecting to God, he's increasing the spirituality in the world. Reb Chaim Velazhin, again, this great disciple of the Vilna Goyen, says, a Jew must never say to himself, who am I? And what difference do my actions make? Anyway, rather, a person must understand and internalize that no detail of his every deed, word, or thought is ever lost. On the contrary, his deeds are exceedingly powerful and effective. Each one ascends to the higher worlds and has repercussions there. Everything we do makes a difference. Nothing is lost, right? If somebody's praying and they say, "Oh, you like that," like I mean, they 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 cry to God, or they say, "Somebody prays sterile." Mm. That's not just that moment of prayer. They make a different effect in the whole world. It's a different reality to the world. If somebody is a famous story that the Vilna Gaon's mother, I'm not sure the story is true, but it's a, the point's for sure true. The Vilna Gaon's mother came to him in a dream. And he asked her, what's the world to come like? So he, she said, I'll tell you something. A few years ago, uh, somebody asked me and your aunt for directions. She asked us for directions. And we both gave directions, but I pointed. And I said, go there. She said, Mom said, I'm still being rewarded for pointing, giving the extra point, helping out a little bit more. Right? That extra point, that extra effort has effects. Right? A person wakes up, you know, today, a person's happy. God wants to be happy in this world. Right? One of the biggest concepts in Kabbalah and in Judaism is simcha, rejoicing, be happy. A person's a little bit, ah, and a person's a little bit, hi, great, how are you doing? Wonderful, it's fantastic, right? Bruce, I have good news for you. You organize a Jewish class, you're going to get rewards for eternity. You're in good shape. You did a good deed. You didn't waste your time. Actually, he had organized his class, and then I went to Israel a month ago. He was rewarded. You're not going to, anything a person does. You know, a person's courteous. There's there's an effect. And a person beeps their horn instead of, you know, letting it go in the car. It has, there's a difference. Not just because when you beep a horn, you you, you stress out, not only the, the driver in front of you, but everyone in the streets, anyone ever driven in Manhattan? Has anyone driven in Manhattan? I mean, I, 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 my blood pressure goes up there. You know, it's terrible. It, 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 it ruins my day. You know, I'm a, I can't, it doesn't ruin my day, but you get stressed. Besides the fact that people jump in front of your cars, but they're beeping, you wait by a life for a second. That's right? against the law now, you can't do that. Doesn't matter. That's it, yeah. <laughs> I, I, there, there is a, a concept, of course, which we learned in the beginning of the Torah, of Jacob's Ladder. What does Jacob's Ladder tell us? Exactly the same. The stone, the Maharal, who is a great uh, late 16th century sage from Prague, the Maharalmi Prague. So the stone represents physicality. Physicality, this world. And from that stone, there's a ladder that goes up and down. You can use this world to go up or down. Everything you do takes you up and down, Right? The world, God puts us to be able to do great things uh, in, 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 the, in this world. Okay, wait. Who would Jacob wrestling against? Huh? Which, against Aesop? Yeah, the wrestling. The wrestling is showing yeah. that there's some being that Right. Yeah, anyone know? Yeah. Right, right, right. And I struggled with, with angels. Exactly. This, this, that's, this metaphysical uh, reality. But the angel is only a messenger. Right. Judaism says, the Torah tells us that there's no power but for... We're going to end in five minutes because I know it's late. There's no power but but for Hashem. Right? That's why 
even what we call Satan or the, the angel of death or all these concepts, it's also an employee of God, right? <laughs> There's no, it, it, everything comes from God. Now, how, that's not my discussion today and how that fits in and how that works. It's a different lecture, a different time. But everything is from Hashem. And certainly that, that angel of Esau is also, Esau is also. But the concept of reincarnation, I'm not going to discuss, but what it does tell us is that um, we have a purpose in this world. And a person is reincarnated when they don't fulfill that purpose. It means that the soul, again, not the body, the soul comes back in different people. Um, the, actually, the Zohar says this. I'll read the, the words of the Zohar. As long as a person is, in, is unsuccessful in fulfilling his purpose in this world, the Holy One, blessed be He, uproots him, takes him from the dying, and replants him over and over again until this soul fulfills its uh, purpose. Uh, Kabbalah could be used properly, it could be abused. Right? Kabbalah could be used, ab- abused. The most important use of it, Reb Chaim Freelander, uh, who was the dean of the, uh, actually the Mashkiach, the spiritual mentor of the Panovich Yeshiva in Bnei Brak in Israel, uh, one of the great uh, Bali Machshav, uh, expositors of Jewish thought in the Kabbalist. So he said, Kabbalah is not just about enlightening us in the understanding of things. Rather, its purpose is to teach us practically how to serve God. Right? Not to go to some Kabbalah center and put on a red string and drink water, right? You know, it's, it teaches practically how to serve God. Everything that God has revealed to us about His ways and His world is a lesson for us. We can understand His will in creating different levels of the world, so what is our purpose in relation to this world? Right? And that's ultimately the greatness of, of Kabbalah. Um, I have a couple minutes. Anyone has any questions on what I spoke about today? Okay, that's good. I thank everyone for living. I thank Bruce for organizing. And yes, one question. Throw it at me. Absolutely. I will get it online. I'm going to leave you my card. Anyone wants to email me, I'm happy to share it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay.